Well, hey, my name's Jamie. I have the privilege of being a pastor here at Midtown Church. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to ask you to meet me in 1 Peter. 1 Peter, we're going to be in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, we have some free copies in the lobby. That's our gift to you. Please take one if you want to read Scripture with someone that doesn't also have a copy of God's Word. Free feel to grab one for them and take that with you. You can look it up on your smartphone. We'll also have... The verses here on the screen, I'm going to ask if you would please stand with me in the honor of reading God's word. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Those are the very words of God. Pray with me. Father, we do ask now here in this place that you would be gracious to us. We ask that we would encounter your word in a way that changes us, that we wouldn't simply... Come, read, and leave, but that your word would cut us, that our sin and self-centeredness and all the ways that we're not like Jesus would bleed out, that we would leave looking more like your son. God, so we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true, and we thank you that it's from you. We can trust it. It's in the wonderful, wonderful name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Standing in grace. So we've titled this series in 1 Peter, the book we're going to be walking through this year. We get that from chapter 5, verse 12. It's sort of the thesis statement, the summary statement. Peter actually tells us why he wrote. I'm going to ask you to flip there and look at that with me. Chapter 5, verse 12. Here's what he says, that by Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Grace is going to be a really broad, all-encompassing idea here. That what Peter is going to unpack as we look at this book this year are, are the ways that God's grace touches every aspect of not only our lives, but every aspect of how our lives intersect culture, how it inter- intersects society, that, that Peter is going to say, because of what God's done for you, this is who you are, this is how you live. And gang, he is writing to a group of Christians that I believe to be a a mix of Gentile and Jewish backgrounds that where they are living, all those places listed are now modern day Turkey, that where they're living during the time Peter is writing them, they are going uh, under some intense social and cultural pressure points. For the Lord that they profess faith in, Jesus whom they are following, their faithfulness to him is drawing them in more and more conflict with the world that surrounds them. Persecution, marginalization, loss of business, loss of friendships, loss of status, loss of 
influence, they exist as Christ-centered people in a world that is not. That should ring some familiarities for us this morning. So what Peter wants to exhort us towards as we walk through this letter is, how do we remain faithful, Christ-centered followers of Jesus as we engage on a daily basis every aspect of our surrounding culture and society? He's going to say, stand firm in everything that he unpacks for us as this all-encompassing grace of God. Now, my wife and me, hopefully you'll have a chance to meet her. Uh, Her name's Shanna. She and I are not from here. See, you laugh because it's like, duh. I mean, look at me. Okay, we are transplants to Austin. She grew up in East Texas. I grew up in Auburn, Alabama. That, that those, both of those places are light years away from here culturally. Surprise, surprise. Right? In fact, one of the, the key moments that this came home to me, I met a friend at a coffee shop. I won't name it. It's a local Austin establishment. Uh, it was about a year ago. And I remember walking in, and I'm not exaggerating this. Well, I might be exaggerating this, or it's actually what really happened. I walked in, and it was like a scene in the movie, uh, you know, where, where everything pauses. Time stops, the movie stands still, and then they have the sound effect of, like, the record screeching to the halt, like, right, that sounded like a kazoo, not a record. You know the noise I'm talking about. And I promise you, everybody in the coffee shop just went, And here I am standing at the front door, all these Austinites staring at me, and I could not have felt more out of place. And I remember driving home that day saying, what have I done? Where have I brought my family? They hate me, Lord. In fact, it led me to, I'm trying to patent this invention. If you're into losing money, jump in on investing into this. Do you know how uh, when you board an airplane... They have the luggage racks where you can test the size of your luggage, and if it's too big, they don't let you carry it on. Uh, I'm going to invent a gene meter. And you walk up, and you stick your leg in it, and it lets you know if your genes are skinny enough to enter. (laughs) And if they are, then you can walk in without getting the glare. Right? But look, the reality is it's just hard when you feel out of place. And... I have to say my wife and me now really love Austin and it feels like home, but it took a while. That first year was difficult. Like what was supposed to be home didn't feel like home. And when you're in the midst of that kind of difficulty, of that sort of feeling of unsettledness, it's really hard to stay fully present where you are and not long to be somewhere else. That's part of the challenge that these readers of the letter, and I think us too, are undergoing, except at a much grander scale. But Because even if we love Austin, or even if this is the place that you couldn't wait to get to, you know, you couldn't wait to start UT, or you couldn't wait to move into Midtown, or Hyde Park, or Rosedale, whatever it is, that like Austin was your dream destination, that even if that's true of you, there's still something inside of us that longs for more, like Austin can't fulfill everything that the heart is looking for. It's what C.S. Lewis calls longing for that other 
country because even if we're loving life, there's something in us that longs for the day when cancer isn't true. Sin isn't true. Suffering isn't true. There's a day we're longing for when reporters don't get gunned down on live TV. When Bible study attendees don't get mass murdered on a Wednesday night at their church. That we long for that. To, to taste a day when all brokenness is healed and repaired, that, that we're living actually oh, with Jesus, with God in a new heavens and a new earth where everything is made right again, where there are no more tears, pain, suffering, but we're not there yet. So in a sense, we are, as Peter writes, exiled. We are living here but longing for there. And here's what can happen. The brokenness of this world can at times creep in and we say, I just don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to engage here anymore. Like I would rather be where the scriptures promise me that I'm heading. And that's what Peter writes to us. And he says, hey, I know you long for that. And it's promised to you. Like, I guarantee that that day is coming. But until then, we have to be faithfully, fully present. In every arena where we find ourselves in culture, in every arena where we find ourselves in the church. So he's going to exhort us towards that. Right? So until we get there, you stand firm here. In the way to begin the standing firm that Peter's going to show us is we've got to remember what God's done for us and who we are in light of that. So look at it with me. First Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to press pause there. It is, it's really remarkable that this letter is written by Peter. Peter's known for some things. In fact, if you even think towards the uh, thesis verse we talked about, the fact that he's saying, hey, no, no, stand firm, don't shrink back. But we look at this reader and say, well, now, wait a second. But Peter, you shrank back. Remember when, when your Lord was arrested and, and his trial began and you were kind of standing on the outskirts and you were approached three times saying, hey, aren't you one of his disciples? And three times, Peter, you said, I've never met him. I don't know him. I don't know him. And even the third time, the scriptures say with sharpness or with cursing that Peter made it very clear, I am not associated with that man. So how can Peter write this to us? Where does he get off telling us to stand firm when it seems like he shrank back? Well, why isn't he still just reveling in this guilt and shame and defeat of that moment? One word. Grace. The unbelievable, restoring, renewing, shame-taking, guilt canceling grace of God. Some of us need that gospel reminder this morning. Some of us need to know and hear again that no matter where you've been, what you've done, what you've been through, no matter whether it was last night, a week ago, a year ago, let me tell you something that we learned just by who the author is 
through restoring, renewing, making life beautiful again, taking brokenness and making it whole. Grace of God is real and it is fully and freely available to you in the person of Jesus Christ. All of that shame, that guilt, you don't have to carry it anymore. And it's so restorative that it can take a man who denied Jesus in real time to be an apostle that writes us one of the most magnificent letters we have in all of Scripture. Gang, there's so much hope in that. If you've ever doubted, does God love me? Can God use me? Will he even associate with someone like me? The author of this letter proves absolutely, 100% of the time, yes. Yes. So he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, here's who he's writing to, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. It's an interesting description, isn't it? I think we'll see throughout this letter that Peter is going to use some Old Testament, I'm going to say Old Covenant language, to help God's New Covenant people understand their story and understand what to learn from the Old Covenant people and how that relates. So most likely, I think Peter's trying to draw our mind to an Old Testament historical event when the southern kingdom of Israel was exiled to Babylon. They were literally God's chosen people. That's elect. We're going to take it in a broad sense. just means they were called out. God chose a people for himself. And those chosen people uh, uh, were, were exiled out to Babylon. And we don't have time to look at it. But if you were to read through uh, the prophet Jeremiah, you will find that they lived a certain way while in exile. In fact, it says that even though they longed to be back in Jerusalem, that they got to Babylon and they did things like built gardens, uh, cultivated businesses, uh, had deep relationships, still fully engaged in, in their city and fully engaged in worshiping God as a community that even though they longed to be somewhere else where their heart really was, that they faithfully and fully engaged. I think Peter wants us to learn that. We talked about it in our introduction. But he says, hey, in a sense, we are right now We are living as exiles. We are in a home that is not our home. We are in one place while ultimately longing to be in another. And he says, dig in. And in a metaphorical sense, cultivate some gardens. Get about your business. Get in deep relationship. Plug into a community of people in this place that are worshiping and following God. Because the first thing he wants us to know is, hey, church, you're called out people. God wants you. Drawing us to himself. And here's what else he says is true about it. Verse 2, this is all done according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. When it relates to God, it always carries a relational hint. It, It is the fact of relating to So what Peter is saying, hey, God related to you and moved towards you long before you wanted to relate towards him. He called you, moved towards you. And look what else that he did, that that it said, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctification is set apart language to make you distinct, 
to make you more and more like his son, Jesus. So God called you out to be a people for himself, then set you apart to be distinct, that we live here as, as people looking more and more like Jesus, not more and more like the culture or the, the surroundings. And then he says this, for, so for a reason, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Now, I take that to be another allusion to an Old Testament event. In fact, when the nation of Israel was with Moses at, at Sinai, that, that, that he, he read them the law, and here's what they said, that everything you've commanded us, we will do, obedience. And then he took the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkled it on the people. It was a covenant-making relationship. So here's what I think Peter wants us to know about ourselves because of what God has done, number one, is that he wants you. He wants to be in relation with you. So God called us. He set us apart to be like his son so that we could be in covenant with him. So you're called out by God to be set apart for God so that we can be in covenant relationship with God. And all of this done is done by the unbelievable power of God. It is marvelous. In fact, it's the best news we could possibly hear. It necessarily means that all of our old ways of living, our old ways of finding hope, all of our old ways of just futility, of desire, and of trying to soak up everything in this world to satisfy that deep void of our heart, here Peter is saying, Quit going there. The water runs out. But if by God's grace you would just believe in the wondrous act and life of his son, that here's what he's saying, that you would know that you know that you know that you're called out by God, set apart for God to be in covenant relationship with God, and all this is done by the power of God. So that's 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Hope is a living thing, a continual thing, but the only way that's possible is if that hope is something that can never die. Which is why ultimate hope can only be found in the resurrection of Christ. Because at Jesus' resurrection, he rose to never die again. Which necessarily means this, hope in anything less than him will run out, will let you down, that will pass away. In fact, it was, it was a really sweet moment. Um, man, we're still praying for her. We love her. My wife and I have a dear friend who was over at our house about a week ago, and uh, we got in a conversation about spiritual things, and I uh, just kind of asked bluntly, hey, what's the holdup? Like, what is the hurdle to you embracing Jesus? And she said, and I love the honesty very clearly, the resurrection. The resurrection. I'm really struggling believing that he could raise from the dead because that's not normal. And I said, you nailed it. And I said, Hey, if the resurrection is not true, Shannon and me are complete and total fools with no hope. 
In fact, everything loses meaning if Jesus didn't raise from the dead. Which is why I get really excited about talking about historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus outside of the Bible. So if you ever want to go down that road, I'd love to have that conversation with you. Because it all hinges on that. Everything. In fact, we should start every service, every time we gather with the the thing we only do at Easter, with He is risen, and you would respond with? Every day. Every single day. It's a living, breathing hope. But here's what's also true about resurrection. If we just look at the pattern of Jesus, resurrected life always brings forth more life. So, Christ's resurrection to newness of life makes it possible for us to taste newness of life in Him. So, resurrected life brings life. So, here's what I'm going to challenge us with this week. Only one assignment. i got one task for you, for me, for all of us. Try to practically live out a resurrection reality. And here's what I mean. As people of the resurrection... We need to move, live, and have our being bringing life into every corner of creation. And that is such a big spectrum. Like there's this ultimate end of the spectrum, which is when we, by God's mercy, he uses us to see someone come to faith in Jesus and eternal life is, is, is born up in them right then in that moment. We can see that as the ultimate newness of, of life-giving in resurrection. But then there's all these other things in the spectrum too. That it is, what are your normal rhythms that bring you into contact with culture, with your surroundings, and how can you, as a distinct, set-apart person, bring life to those situations? Right, so what's the normal culture in your company? And what's one way this week that you could be a person of the resurrection and just breathe life and hope in that situation? UT students, in your classes... Like, what's the normal culture? What's one way this week you could be a distinct, life-giving, practicing resurrection reality? On our streets with our neighbors, what's normal culture? I'll tell you what it is. I live on a street. In the garage, out the garage. In the garage, out the garage. In the gra- like, how can we be distinct this week? I love what John Burke at Gateway Church says. Walk, don't wave. Walk, don't wave. Don't do the 30-yard way. Just take a chance and walk towards them. Have a conversation, right? Bring distinct life because as people of the resurrection, newness of life should be boiling over in us. Okay, so we've got to practice resurrection realities and that's one of the first ways that we engage this place that is not home when we're headed towards home. Okay, let's keep going. Last two verses, then we're done. To an inheritance. So look at this. Resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Hey, Jesus taught something. We have time to look at it in Matthew chapter 6, and here's what he says. He says, don't store up for your treasure here. He says, if you store up here, it's going to decay. It's going to rust. It's going to be defiled. There's got to be something better than that. There's got to be a hope that transcends that. And the hope is Jesus himself. 
everything that comes with him, the fact that we get to be co-heirs with Christ, we get to live with Christ, we get to be in the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, all of that is guaranteed. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading, meaning it never loses beauty. It never loses glory. We are guaranteed that. But we're just not there yet. And in those moments, in the here and now, when you just go, it's too much. I'm tired. I'm hurting. I'm suffering. I feel betrayed. Set your sights on where you're headed. Because where we're headed will determine what we do here and now. And and let me encourage you. There's so much courage Right? And, and so much loss of fear that comes with this reality. The greatest thing that is yours can never be taken from you. We can't lose it. It can't be snatched away. So whatever the gospel costs you here, there's infinitely greater things to come. And that should embolden us to live unbelievably courageous, risk-taking lives for the sake of the gospel. I've got a conversation coming up with a dear friend, I've known him since kindergarten, that wants me to do his wedding. We're going to do this on some issues like sexual activity, the meaning and purpose of marriage. I'm scared to death because I've known him since I'm five. And I know The friendship's on the line. But even if I lose that, the greatest thing's still yet to come. So Midtown, it's waiting on us. Verse 5 tells you it's watched over by God himself. It's protected. It's guaranteed. So here's my charge to us. Let's move forward with bold, Courage as people of the resurrection, saturating everything we come in contact with, with resurrection life. We've got to know what God has done for us, who he has made us, if we're going to know what it means to stand firm in the true grace of God. I hope you'll walk with us as we journey through First Peter. Pray with me. God, you're so good. And even when I get scared, you tell me I don't have to fear because you're for me and you're with me. So God, I pray for all of us here. Would you just show us, just show us how to stand firm? Show us these resurrection realities that we can practice that give us so much hope, so much courage. God, thank you that Peter wrote this book, that we can just look at the author and know that your grace comes to us in the most restorative powerful, healing ways. And God, if anyone is here that has not tasted newness of life in Jesus, I pray that your spirit right now would be churning in them to ask, how can I know Christ? For it's in his wonderful, wonderful name I pray. Amen.